Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Since the beginning of time, kings have waged war for wealth, women, and land. Since the beginning of the written word, mankind has been enthralled with stories about kings and kingdoms, armies and land, good versus evil. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a few tales of two kingdoms engaged in a battle of good versus evil, but not over land, riches, or women, but instead... These two kingdoms are warring over the souls of men and women. We're continuing our journey through the parables of Jesus today called Once Upon a Time. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Matthew chapter 13 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. Uh, I want to apologize. We had a snafu with our printer this week, and so I think most of you got two pages of sermon notes one side printed each or something like that. So if you, um, I'll just make you aware, on Tuesday afternoons, I normally have the message uploaded to our website and podcast, and I also include a PDF of the sermon note handout. So if you really like your notes looking neat like I do, just get down what you can off the keynote screen, and then just think Tuesday. On Tuesday, I can get, I can get them put in the right spot. I can download the PDF, fill it out, it'll look good. So, um, but I'll go slow for you as well so that you can get things jotted down. If you missed last week's message, speaking of the website and our podcast, I want to encourage you to listen to it so that you can get caught up to speed on some of the introductory material I shared on this series and just explaining a little background on Proverbs and a few interesting statistics. Uh, a couple things I do want to review, not exhaustively, but a couple things I do want to bring back up that are pertinent for this week um, that I did touch on last week is the definition of a parable. Uh, a parable is a short story uh, told by Jesus. He loved to use them as a teaching tool. But it, it was a short story from everyday life that had a powerful truth embedded in it. Or the way I like to say it and define it, because it, it's easy for me to remember, is it's a, parab- a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly truth. It's an earthly story with a heavenly truth. Uh, the New Testament word for parable uh, is two Greek words. When put together, they mean to throw alongside. Uh, which is, in essence, what Jesus did when he told parables. He uh, would take something from everyday life, like farming or fishing, and then he would put it alongside a spiritual truth and wrap it up together. And so uh, the Lord spoke in parables also because uh, he wanted to illustrate for humble hearts that were eager to, eager to learn, he wanted to put color and um, teach in a memorable way some of the truths he was trying to impart. But you might also remember me mentioning last week that another reason Jesus used parables was to disguise spiritual truth. Because amongst his audience were enemies who wanted to trap him. They, they wanted to 
catch him saying something that they could accuse him of, get a sound bite, you know, and, and then um, be able to use that to get him arrested and, and thrown in jail. Uh, next, uh, I want to define a term that is going to come up today in the parables we'll be looking at, and that is the term or the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, there are two ways this shows up. In, in Matthew, predominantly, he likes to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. Um, Luke and Mark, they like to say the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of heaven is used 31 times exclusively in Matthew. Kingdom of God, on the other hand, is used 14 times in Mark and 32 times in Luke. The two terms either kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, have different meanings depending on the context in which they're used. And they were often used to introduce parables. As you'll see today, Jesus would often start off with, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, and then he would tell the story. Well, what does kingdom mean? That was something I wanted to figure out this week in my studies, and so it means really two things. First of all, whenever Jesus or the gospel writers talked about the kingdom, the first thing they might have been talking about is the people of God, past and present, who will populate his kingdom in the future. It's all the people, past and present, who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. It's, it's those who have surrendered their lives to him by submitting to him. And in Luke 17, for example, the Lord said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said to his listeners. So that's an example of Luke 17 where he's saying the kingdom of God is people. But then the other way the kingdom of God is used is to refer to the place. The place of Jesus' physical kingdom in the future. So we've got kingdom of God meaning people, and we've got kingdom of God meaning the place. The Lord said in John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. And then the book of Revelation says that Jesus will establish a millennial kingdom here on earth, followed by the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, during which his reign will continue. So, so the scriptures talk about a physical place that Jesus is going to establish and reign as king, over his people. Uh, and that the goal of that kingdom is to, in essence, restore everything back to what it was supposed to be in the garden. Uh, no, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more loss. Uh, it will be a physical place where everything will be back to what it was supposed to be. So the physical kingdom is what Paul told the Philippians to hope for. You might remember from the Philippians series we wrapped up last month, uh, when Paul wrote to them in Philippians 3.20, your citizenship is in heaven. He was, in essence, telling the Philippians, stop being prideful about your Roman citizenship. 
You're getting too carried away with your patriotism. And instead, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. There's another kingdom, another empire that you belong to, even though you're not there yet physically. Uh, So uh, also, the physical kingdom is what Jesus taught us to pray for. Does this sound familiar to you? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Did you ever know what that means? That's okay, I didn't either until recently. Here's what it means. It's a reference to Jesus coming back to establish his physical kingdom. So, interestingly, Jesus put into the Lord's Prayer a request for him to come down and establish his kingdom on earth, his physical kingdom. That's what that means. And so, so in other words, when there's earthquakes and tornadoes and mass shootings and the news is just dark and depressing, and when we're hurting from the fall of sin and everything we have to deal with here on earth, what we should do in response is pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be the name, Thy kingdom come. Bring your kingdom. We want it, please. Or we can pray what what John said to pray at the end of Revelation, one of the very last verses in the entire Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Because that is what we should long for. Now, these terms and their meanings in Jesus' purpose in using kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, they're important for at least two reasons. Um, they are another reason that he spoke in parables. Parables allowed the Lord to talk about his own kingdom during the height of the iron-fisted Roman Empire without sounding like an insurrectionist. Okay, So it allowed him to carefully teach and do his ministry longer and have more time and freedom than, than uh, he would have otherwise had because... You might remember, for example, um, uh, the king, the emperor in the, in the Christmas story when Jesus was a toddler in Matthew chapter 2. And um, the, uh, the, the king said, uh, go find this. Who is this king that's been born here in Bethlehem? I, I want to worship him too when the Magi, Magi went and saw, saw the king. Well, we know from, from previous teachings on that, from Matthew chapter 2, Herod was not wanting to worship baby Jesus. He wanted to have baby Jesus killed because he was threatened by the thought of another king usurping his authority. Another reason that Jesus taught in parables is that um, he references his kingdom as a way to provide a preview of what his kingdom physically and his people will look like in the future. So he's giving us sort of a peek at heaven when he talks about the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's giving little sneak peeks at how much better life in his kingdom is going to be compared to the governments that we live in. So having said that, I hope you were able to follow along with me there. I wanted to make that as simple as I could so that we can better understand the parables we're going to look at today. Here's the big idea. Uh, We're going to be looking at six parables today, six short parables. Um, The big idea is this. The kingdom of heaven is an unstoppable force worth infinitely more than anything else on earth.
And that's the shortest big idea I could come up with for six parables, by the way. The kingdom of heaven is an unstoppable force worth infinitely more than anything else on earth. There are a total of seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. We looked at the first one last week, the parable of the sower. Today we're going to look at the remaining six, all of which begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. These six kingdom parables answer important questions, such as, why do some people leave their church and never find another one? They just stop going. Or, will the Lord's church be able to survive in a world that's growing darker and darker each day? Or another question that these parables answer Is living an authentic Christian life worth what it will cost me? And so the first story that we'll be looking at is called the parable, the weeds, or what some translations title the parable of the tares. If you would look at Matthew chapter 13, as I read verses 24 to 30. And so he put a parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Here's the first point on your outline. There are three main points, three truths that these parables tell us today. The first point is this. The enemy will infiltrate the church with false believers. The enemy will infiltrate the church with false believers. Notice in verse 25, he says, while his men were sleeping in the story uh, about this this master who had this land and this crop that's planted, it's worth noting that the the reference to the the servant sleeping, it's not because they were neglecting the crops. Uh, They were sleeping because it was nighttime, just like any of us would, Instead, the fact that they were sleeping and that the enemy came while they were sleeping, it actually says more about the enemy. The enemy was coming under the cover of darkness to be stealthy. The enemy did his malicious work under the cover of darkness to avoid detection. Uh, Next, notice in, in verse 25 it also says, the enemy, when he came at night under the cover of darkness... He sowed weeds among the wheat. So 
a second thing the enemy did to avoid detection was his choice of weed. The word used in the original language for weed refers to what's called a bearded darnel. Depending on which translation you're using, you may have a footnote in your Bible that mentions the darnel like mine does. I'm using the ESV translation. The bearded darnel, or sometimes it's called poisoned rye, it's a type of ryegrass that looks just like wheat. And it looks just like wheat until the ear appears. The plant's official name, which I won't even try to pronounce, it comes from the Latin word for drunk because its seeds cause humans to become dizzy and nauseous when ingested. So the enemy didn't plant weeds that were easy to spot, like dandelions, you know, or some crabgrass or something like that. No, he planted weeds that were difficult to spot because they looked like the crop. They looked like wheat. Now, that's important to keep in mind because this parable as you'll soon see, it's distinct from others in that it's one of the few that Jesus interpreted for his listeners. It's also, this parable only appears in this gospel, but let's look at Jesus' explanation. So if you would skip down and look at verse 36, verses 36 to 43. So, he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, in verse 38, you notice he mentions the field is the world. And I'll be transparent with you in saying that um, there is disagreement amongst reputable evangelical scholars on how to interpret this parable. One guy says this, another guy says this, third guy says this. Um, some think that Jesus was saying the enemy plants false converts out in the world to hurt the witness of the church. Others think the enemy plants them in the church. And then there's debate back and forth uh, across various commentators between them over uh, what does it mean to be in the church versus out of the church, the world versus out of the world, so on and so forth. I think it's possible Jesus meant both, but 
more likely, I think he was saying the enemy plants weeds in the church. And here's why. I say this because according to the story, the weeds are sown among the wheat. You see that in verse 25. In fact, they're so close in proximity to the wheat that the master says, don't, don't pull the weeds yet because we may damage the wheat. So that tells me close proximity. That, that would suggest in the church because if they were just out in the world, they wouldn't do harm if you just yanked the weeds up out in the world. Because I think it's assumed... The wheat is not out in the world. Um, Next, another reason I think Jesus is referring to false converts embedded in the church is that that's where they would be most effective. Uh, They would not be much of a threat out in the world. It just makes more sense. Um, Now, again, I'm not being rogue on this when I say this. Um, There are a couple reputable commentators that I follow that would agree with me, and there are a couple reputable guys that don't. But I think that's what he's meaning. Now, notice in verse 40, so it will be at the end of the age. Obviously, Jesus is explaining in the master uh, why the master in the story told the servants to wait until harvest time to remove the weeds. Uh, A few commentators have suggested this means churches should not exercise church discipline um, in order to protect the wheat. Uh, However, such an interpretation would It just doesn't stand up with what the rest of the New Testament teaches on church discipline and how the New Testament, especially the apostles, urge elders to protect their flock with discipline. Um, Next, notice in verse 42, the reference to the fiery furnace. Obviously, it's a reference to the final judgment, uh, awaiting for those who chose to reject the salvation offered by Jesus Christ. Heaven is a place where saints populate it who have surrendered to the will of God on earth. Hell, on the other hand, is a place filled with rebels who refused to submit to God while they had a chance. And just in case anybody thinks hell would be a more desirable place than heaven to be because of all the partying they're doing down there, supposedly. I don't know if you've ever heard that excuse. Sadly, I have. I've had... Hard-hearted unbelievers say, well, I want to go to hell because that's where my mom is or that's where my dad is or they're having more fun down there. Well, did you notice how Jesus describes hell? It's a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we'll get into another parable in a few weeks that gets into more detail about hell, but the Lord, he describes the same outcome In the parable of the net, if you just look down in your Bible, skip down a couple paragraphs, in verses 47 to 50, Jesus tells another parable about fishing. And I'll just paraphrase it for the sake of time. He just says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown out into the sea, and it brings in good fish and bad fish. And the fishermen, when they get to shore, they sort the good fish out and put them in a container. And the bad fish, they get thrown into the fiery furnace. So it's the same kind of message. Once again, Jesus is not playing games. It's not everybody's going to heaven, and if you have Jesus, you just get there faster. It's not that at all. It's you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Your sins are atoned for, 
and you get to spend eternal life with him, or if you reject Jesus, you spend eternity in hell paying the consequences for your sin. So, um, just like the parable of the weeds, in the parable of the net, there's a separating, there's a sorting. And I probably don't need to say this, but I will just in case, Jesus is not fooled. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. He knows the, the good fish from the bad fish. He knows the weeds from the wheat. There will, there will be no mistakes in the sorting that takes place. Now, I think Jesus told this parable of the weeds so that we would know the adversary will plant people in the church who look like believers but are not. This certainly uh, rhymes or it fits with things that we've seen already in our studies of the epistles last year when I was uh, preaching through John's letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Oh my gosh, 1st John, it's something he keeps bringing up over and over and over and over again, false converts. He's upset that there are people who claim to know Jesus but don't. And so he spends 1 John giving all the proofs. Here's how you know whether you're born again. Here's how you know. I write this so that you would know, so that you would know. It's one of the key themes. Um, These unbelievers that the Lord, excuse me, that the adversary plants in the church could be a close friend, could be your spouse, could be your child. It could be someone in your small group. It's a reminder of what we learned in the parable of the sower last week. Not every profession is a conversion. Jesus is saying that, not not me. He's making it clear. Just as we saw last week, only one out of the four soils were born again. The other three were not. Two out of the three that were not looked like they were saved. And again, if you missed that message, you'll want to listen to it. This parable of the weeds is a reminder also that the battle for souls is trench warfare. The enemy has no mercy and he follows no rules of engagement. He'll do whatever whatever it takes to trick believers, shepherds, and anything he can do to tear down the church. He'll do even if it means embedding some false converts. However, there is nothing to fear because all churches are made up of people who were former weeds. And people who are not wheat yet. So the Lord has dominion over that. So what's the parable really saying? I think if I would boil it down into a sentence, I think this parable is saying, despite sabotage attempts by the enemy, the kingdom of heaven is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. It hasn't stopped the church yet. And the Lord, because he's so powerful and has dominion over the adversary, he can take all the things the adversary does and turn it into good. So the Lord's not panicking either. So the kingdom of Heaven is unstoppable, and it's worth infinitely more than anything else on earth. Let's look at the next couple parables, verses 31 to 33. Jesus gives us two short ones now. So, verse 31, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like 
a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And then he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Here's uh, number two on your outline, what I think Jesus is saying here, the truth that he's trying to get across, and that is that the gospel will populate the world with true believers. The gospel will populate the world with true believers. The parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 and 32 are also told that, excuse me, that parable is also told in Mark chapter 4 and Luke 13. The parable of the leaven shows up in Luke 13 as well. Now, as with the previous parable, there is some disagreement amongst commentators about what Jesus means here, uh, but the meaning of these two stories. One common interpretation is that these are describing how quickly sin or evil can spread in the kingdom. Uh, supporters of this view believe the birds in verse 32 must be evil because the birds that were referenced in last week's parable were evil. You remember when the sower scattered seed, it says in Matthew 13 verse 4 that the birds came and picked the seeds up off the hard ground and that the birds represented the devil. Well, some commentators take that to mean, well, the birds here in verses um, 31 32, they must be also the devil. Uh, also, the leaven, these commentators, some think that the leaven represents sin, just like it does in other places in the Bible. However, uh, I'm going to side with a couple guys that uh, disagree with that view, and here's, here's why. Uh, the birds are not always evil in the Bible. Um, for example, back in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus used God's care for birds as an example of why we should not worry about food or clothing. Matthew 6, verses 25 to 33. Uh, also, leaven was sometimes used by the Israelites in sacrificial offerings. And that's in Leviticus chapter 7 and Leviticus chapter 23. And so, uh, I think Jesus is talking about the spread of the gospel in the world here in these two small parables. I think Jesus told us these two small parables because he wants us to remember that the Lord delights in producing great results from small beginnings because he gets glory. He loves to take small things that the world would say, oh, that's just nothing, you, you, you know, nothing good could come out of that. It doesn't meet our qualifications. The Lord loves to use weak, broken people and small numbers to do big things. And so, in this case, Jesus is saying that although he has a ragtag group of 12 disciples that don't look like much in the world's eyes, doesn't matter. Because just like a tiny mustard seed that becomes an 8 to 12 foot tree, or a tiny piece of leaven that spreads throughout a whole pile of dough, the Lord's kingdom will grow exponentially. 
with his supernatural power behind it. And it has. It has. When you think about the early beginnings of the church and the fact that it's still around. Uh, Despite overwhelming odds, so what is this parable really saying? Well, despite overwhelming odds, the kingdom of heaven will overcome. It'll overcome. And this, this is in line with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, just a couple chapters later, where Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And they haven't. The church is still here. The gospel is still spreading and preachers are still preaching, and people are still getting saved. So the kingdom of heaven, it's an unstoppable force worth infinitely more than anything else on earth. Now, in our final two parables, they, they go together as well as a couplet, just like the previous two. Um, they are called the parable of hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. Uh, take a look at Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who... On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. He bought it. Here's number three on your outline. The gift of salvation will be worth the cost of discipleship. The gift of salvation will be worth the cost of discipleship. Although these two stories are similar, they're very similar, they also have two distinctives that set them apart. Notice the first parable references treasure, and the second one, pearl. Uh, pearls back then were like diamonds are to us today. They were very, very valuable and hard to come by. Uh, notice also in the first parable, the treasure finds the man... And in this second parable, the man went out to find the treasure, or the pearls. Now, in verse 44, where it says, like a treasure hidden in a field, in the first century, there, there were obviously no banks or safe deposit boxes uh, insured by the FDIC, like we have today, uh, so people could store, securely store their belongings and their, their money. And so for this reason, people had to make their own arrangements for protecting their wealth. And one common solution that at least farmers used is they would bury their wealthy treasures or money in their field somewhere. And so if a farmer then went away on a journey but was not able to return, his money could be accidentally found by someone else. But in order to avoid a legal dispute, you know, because the treasure was found on somebody else's property, so thus the owner of the property owns the treasure. In order to avoid a legal dispute um, with the landowner, this man here in the parable sells all that he has and buys the land so he can get the treasure because he doesn't want to 
to have to go to, to court and deal with the legal dispute over who owns the treasure and the land. And so, so in essence, what, what many commentators believe is that this man was poor, but he sold all that he had to buy the field because the treasure buried in the field was worth so much more than what he had. Connection to the gospel. Jesus is trying to say that the person who gives away all that they have to Jesus, to, to him, will gain so much more in walking with him and serving him with their lives. Uh, when I was studying these two stories, I was reminded of a news headline that I saw this past spring, and perhaps you saw it too. The world's tallest mountain, Mount Everest, um, it had a record year this year, I don't know if you knew this, 825 climbers and Sherpas reached the summit of Everest this year. It was a record. Unfortunately, the number of deaths also reached a four-year high. There were 11 fatalities. One of the leading causes for the fatalities this year was overcrowding that created a traffic jam in what climbers called the death zone, which is like the last 1,000 feet, at 28,000 feet to be specific, okay? Because the peak is at 29. That's up where planes fly, you know? So this is because, they call it the death zone, because climbers have to take oxygen tanks with them when they get that high. But because of the overcrowding near the top, and as you see in the, the picture, there's a line on the very narrow ledge there going up to the summit, Climbers were using up their oxygen waiting in line. So they were running out of air. Or by the time they got up to summit and then started to come back down, their air ran out because they had to use so much on the way up. And so that was one of the causes of a few more fatalities. Now, as if the forty dollars to $50,000 of equipment and supplies and then an $11,000 royalty fee on top of that wasn't enough. Along with the rough weather, if that wasn't costly enough, imagine having to wait a few hours in line when you get to 28,000 feet. And having to wait for a few hours when you're just less than 1,000 feet from the summit. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, if pride and personal accomplishment or just the thrill of the experience would motivate a climber to spend over $50,000 to climb the tallest mountain in the world, to go through rough weather, to wait in line when they get to 28,000 feet, to risk running out of oxygen, and maybe run out on the way back down, maybe they make it to the top, but they don't know if they're going to make it back down, if they're willing to do that, how much more should we be willing to risk all that we can for the kingdom? Especially because the kingdom has been described by a man who's proven to be reliable by fulfilling more than 100 prophecies, performing countless miracles, predicting his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then conquering death and then being witnessed by 500 or more people. 
How much more should we be willing to give our lives away for his kingdom if some Mount Everest climbers are willing to risk their lives just to get up to the summit, not knowing if they're going to make it back down? Now, Jesus didn't tell these two parables because eternal salvation can be purchased for the right price. That's not what he's saying here. Salvation through Jesus Christ is free, but there is a cost that comes with following Christ. The two cannot be separated. Uh, Jesus also didn't tell these two parables because he expects us to sell all our belongings and live like monks. He's not saying that either. Instead, Jesus told these two parables so that we would realize following Christ is of greater value than whatever we might have to surrender in order to do so. Just like the two men, they sold everything they had, even though it was much less than what they would gain. That's the point of the parables. He is worth more than your friends that you might lose, family that might disown you, your reputation, your lifestyle, and living with what's familiar. Following Christ and living a life that pleases Him is worth so much more than all that. So what's this parable really saying? Well, despite a delayed return on your investment, offering up our lives to Christ, for membership in his eternal kingdom, is worth it. It's worth it. It is a good decision, is what Jesus was trying to say. He is worth giving our control to, our comfort to, our calendars to, our checkbook to. He is worth it. Jesus is saying you won't regret it, just like these two men did not regret their purchases. So, uh, how do we apply these parables that we've looked at? We've covered a lot of ground, and you've done a great job following along with a janky note sheet. I'm proud of you. Three applications. Number one, have reasonable expectations of your church. The parable of the weeds is a sobering reminder that every local church has varying degrees of maturity and varying proportions of believers to unbelievers. This all affects how the, how the spiritual strengths of the church manifest themselves and how their weaknesses do. We've, we've all heard the saying, and maybe we've even said it ourselves, oh, there's, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect church. Okay, but what does that mean exactly? What does that mean? What do we do with that? Well, I think in a simplest sense, I, I think it means we need to be careful we don't hold the rest of the church to a standard we can't hold ourselves. You know what I mean? Like, every church has its own strengths and weaknesses, including ours. I, I could name all of our weaknesses. You don't need to tell me. I'm frustrated I can't fix them all, because most of them have to do with me. So I, I'm aware of them. 
And believe me, I've been asking the Lord for help with, with the weaknesses, but I'm, I'm learning the older that I get, the key to finding a good church is finding one with weaknesses you can live with and one that can live with yours too. How about you? So have reasonable expectations of your church. Number two, don't be duped by the weeds. The first step to developing the kind of discernment that I think Jesus is hinting at in the parable of the weeds is to know what a true believer looks like. But in addition to the things that you've heard me mention before, such as a, a love for God's word, true believers hate their own sin, they, uh, they have the fruits of the Spirit, um, there's another vital sign that I look for, I've learned to look for as a shepherd. So I'll let you in on a little, I don't know, how can I say that, a couple of my tools that I use, all right? First, when I'm trying to discern where somebody is spiritually, I listen to what they talk about. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 that a tree can be known by its fruit. And he then goes on to explain, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and that abundance oozes from what they treasure. All people made in the image of God have been hardwired from the womb to talk about what they treasure. We just can't help it. We talk about what we love. So if you listen closely to what people talk about most, you'll know what they love. So if the Lord comes up from time to time in casual conversation with them, it's likely that he is their first love, like he should be. On the other hand, if you've known someone for a while who professes to be a Christ follower, but they never talk about Jesus... It raises the question, is he something they treasure? Because if he's treasured in their heart, Jesus said, it'll just bubble up out of them. They'll talk about him. Next, I also listen to how they talk about the Lord. So it's not just what they talk about but how they talk about him. Paul says, and I've given you these references here up on the outline, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It's a key verse. This has come in handy for me so many times. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Paul says, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, what did he mean by this? Simply put, true believers can't take the Lord's name in vain because they have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Spirit can't curse the Son. However, unbelievers can't say Jesus is Lord because they don't have the indwelling Spirit in them. So, pretend believers, uh, pretenders, false believers, fake converts. Instead, what they will do, if you listen closely, they will talk about the Lord in vague generalities, like the man upstairs, the good Lord, 
or just God. They use impersonal terms because they have no personal relationship. So you have to listen closely. Now this verse, 1 Corinthians 12.3, will help you with co-workers, discerning where your children or grandchildren are spiritually, just by listening to what comes out of their heart when they talk about spiritual things. Finally, number three, sell out for and buy into Jesus. The last two parables about the, about the treasure and the pearl may be short and simple, but their application is long and difficult. Easy to say, hard to do. Jesus has no reservations demanding our all from us because he gave his all for us. He deserves our all-inclusive allegiance, excuse me, all-exclusive allegiance, and our all-inclusive surrender. So it begs the question, what are you withholding from the Lord that he's been trying to get you to give up to him? What, 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 what's, what's the Lord been poking you about that you're holding on to that he wants you to give up to him. Well, uh, I would stumble upon a story about a guy that I, I've been dying to share with you. It, it, this, this man named Lo Fook, he was Chinese, and in 1861 he came to know Christ as his Savior. He was affluent, and soon after he got saved, the Lord gave him a deep burden for spreading the gospel amongst his own people, especially his own countrymen who were being taken to South America to work in the mines in the mid-1800s. They were called coolies. It was a derogatory term given to the Chinese slaves that were deported away from China and sold into slavery, taken to South America. Well, Lo Fook, um, he had his problem he wanted to spread the gospel and minister to these Chinese slaves down in South America, but he had no way to reach them until he finally found a way. Fook sold himself into slavery. He was taken to South America, where he spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel alongside his fellow countrymen and slaves. And before he died... In South America, the Lord used him to bring nearly 200 Chinese men to faith in Christ. Now, I was thinking about this late last night. Oh, some of these Vanguardians, they're going to think I'm telling these stories of impossible superhero Christians who they could never be like, and they're just going to kind of write it off. And... So what do I say, you know? Like, I keep telling these stories about these superhero Christians. Well, let me just be honest in my final couple sentences here and say, I don't share these stories because I think the Lord's called all of us to leave our country and go to South America to be missionaries. I mean, he could call us to do that, but it's unlikely. Instead, I share stories like Mr. Fook from mid-19th century China, to challenge us with the question, if he was willing to surrender his life to the Lord, 
shouldn't we be willing to do the same? Because, it, I mean, because it's so unlikely the Lord would ask us to do what Mr. Fook had to do, can't we give our lives to him and be willing to be used by him here? I'm not saying that you set conditions, you know, Lord, I want you to use me in any way you can right here in Kern County, okay? Just right, right. in fact, in this zip code, Lord, would be nice. Just 93312, just right here. I'll do anything you want for me, so long as there's air conditioning within 93312, and so long as I don't get hurt, you know, it'd be okay. But Mr. Fook had more to lose than most of us would, and he gained so much more. I mean, shouldn't we be able to say to the Lord, just tell me what, what you want me to do, Lord, however you want to use me, where I'm working, where I'm living, however you want to use me. I'm all yours. I don't care about my comfort. I don't care about anything else. I just, I just want to be used by you. Have you given the Lord your unconditional surrender? Because he wants to use you to, to build an unstoppable kingdom worth infinitely more than anything else. He wants to use you. But don't just give the Lord your heart. Give him your life. Give him your life. Because he can do so much more with it than you ever could. No offense. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for these stories that um, Jesus told. And Lord, thank you that um, they, they give us a, a combination of convicting truths and encouraging ones. Uh, Father, please, would you just by your spirit, really show us how these apply to each of our own hearts. What, what is it that you want us to do in response to what we've heard? What particular parable out of the six do you want to use? Father, I just also just want to ask that you would use your spirit to surface... what some of us are hanging on to that need, we need to let go of, that we need to give to you. Lord, would you, would you show us if there is anything preventing us from surrendering or anything we haven't surrendered to you yet? Lord, if there are weeds in our lives, would you give us discernment? And if there are any weeds here, Lord, would you transform them into wheat? Save them. Father, we, uh, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for your spirit that illuminates it and helps us understand it. And we thank you, Lord, for a kingdom that is imperishable, that's unstoppable, for the hope of a kingdom that We'll have no political affiliation, no problems with law enforcement, no injustices, 
no high taxes because it'll be ruled by you. Lord, help us to remember our citizenship in heaven. Help us to remember that hope that you've given us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.